jump into our passage, okay? Father, uh, prayers have already been lifted this morning. Amen. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's one of these things that I love to lean into on several of his letters that are called the prison epistles. So if you think about it, this is later on in Paul's life. This is later on in his pastoral ministry. And most conservative scholars believe that this was written from Rome when he was under house arrest in the later years of his life. So, I mean, uh, I don't know if you've been to prison before. I surprisingly have not been to prison. But, uh, but here's the deal. Uh, it's a little bit of a different context to write a letter to a church, isn't it? Now, he was in prison not for immorality or breaking the law or anything directly like he was in prison for preaching the truth of Jesus Christ in a hostile government. Uh, most conservative scholars believe that he and Peter ministered during and under the time of Nero and were eventually killed under the, the time of Nero. And if you look into the history of Nero, this man was insane. <laughs> this man did wacky, wacky things and especially persecuted the church. So much of Roman history was uh, characterized by at least a persecution of those that followed Jesus. Some incredible stories of Christ followers ministering in a really hostile environment, much more hostile than anything that we face today, much more hostile than anything that we face today. It makes us want to pause for a moment and just thank God that we can with joy drive up to Calvary Derby Hill this morning and worship God with zero fear. And it's important for us to know that. It's important for us to thank God for that whenever we think of it, because many of our brothers and sisters across the world do not get that privilege. This letter, written by the great Apostle Paul towards the back end of his life from prison. And you need to know that as we're going into it. It's written to believers at the church at Philippi. But you need to know this about this letter also. It's a different feel than some of the other letters written by the Apostle Paul. The Philippian church didn't have the struggles that the church at Corinth had. The, the Philippian church didn't have the same struggles as the church in Galatia. Uh, the, the message, the overall feel of these, small, these short chapters in Philippians is one of positivity, encouragement, and saying, don't get comfortable. Keep going, church at Philippi. Keep serving the Lord. But the overall theme of this passage is one of encouragement, and Paul is thankful for the Philippian church. All the stuff that he's hearing about the Philippian church just gets him excited. Keep going. He says later, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't just rest on your laurels. Don't just rest on what we've heard about you. Keep following the Lord. Keep going. And as he writes to the church at Philippi, we can take that message this morning at Calvary Derby Hill and apply it to our lives. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, So if there is any encouragement, any in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So right in verse 1, he, he throws an if in there, but we don't need to take that as if it's, it's maybe a possibility. It's like him saying, since this is true, since I know this to be true, about you. It's kind of like when the devil was tempting Jesus in the wilderness and he said, if you are truly the son of God, fill in the blank, turn the stone into bread, so on and so forth. He's not wondering if Jesus is the son of God. The language there can equally be sense, right? In the original language. So since, it, so since encouragement is there in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
kind of like the high priestly prayer of Jesus in the book of John, where he literally prays for the unity of the church. He prays for us. He prays for the unity of the church by which people will know that we're his. I will say this, unity in the true church of God is a life or death issue. It's extremely important. Sometimes new denominations, new church plants, and even, guys, sometimes church splits happen. And, and this sounds crazy, and you might, you might be surprised to hear me say this, but sometimes it's necessary because a pastor will begin to preach heresy or will begin to deny who Jesus is and deny the authority of the word that he's given us. But, man, should we pray for unity? At least as it relates to Calvary Derby Hill. Calvary Derby Hill. It's so easy for us in our time and in our, in our culture to just constantly be looking out at other situations. It's like me with the CSU Rams whenever I see them doing something crazy on the football field. And I don't know anything about football like the coach does, but all of a sudden I assume that I do. And I say, even though I have nothing to do with this team on a direct level, I'm, gonna, I, I'm telling them from the stands what they should be doing instead. People hop online and whatever your favorite sports team is, why are they doing this, fill in the blank? And all of a sudden you see the news and you see what the government officials are doing and you see all these different things and all of a sudden we become backseat drivers to stuff that we're not even connected to, to something that God hasn't even called us to. And it is so easy for us to fix other churches. It is so easy for us to fix other groups of people, fix difficult situations. And friends, let's begin with Calvary Derby Hill. Not that there's something that needs to be fixed, but just like Paul's positive message to the church in Philippi saying, keep going. If there's division among you, throw that aside. Be of the same mind. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy among one of you, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being full accord and of one mind. When you heard Dave talking about next week's meeting, some of you bristled a little bit, I'm sure. You were like, turkey might be worth a meeting or might not, <laughs> right? It might be worth, I don't know if any business meeting is worth a turkey, but here's the, here's the thing. Here, here, hey now, hey now. If it was fajitas, maybe it would change it. But here, here's, the, here's the truth of that, though. What if before you walk into that meeting next Sunday, you read this passage? Be of the same mind. Sympathy, affection, compassion, joy, unity amongst one another unity amongst one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, God has literally placed you in this fellowship on purpose. You are literally in the right place. It's not your, it's not your choice. It's God's choice, and he's put you here. And even if you have differences between your brothers and sisters, Paul says, be of the same mind. Jesus says, unify with one another under my banner, the banner of Jesus Christ. And then verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, that selfish ambition that your, your version might say. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. This is one of those verses in Scripture that if we applied it as a filter to every decision that we make, every conversation that we have, the world would change. This is hard for me. We're, aren't we always so self-seeking? Aren't I always so self-seeking? Don't, doesn't my flesh want my own glory? Yes. Kingdoms rise and fall 
uh, kings and, and queens uh, murder each other and all of these plots on who's going to be the most powerful, who's going to be the most famous. Right now, I'm reading a biography about two um, uh, uh, Baptist leaders a hundred years ago, and it's a fascinating story, but you know what it's filled with? Selfish ambition and conceit, rivalry, biting, fights. And in the end, as you read it, who will be the most powerful? Paul turns that upside down as they should be reminded of the teachings of, of Jesus himself. Jesus said, love your enemy, pray for those that persecute you. Jesus is the one that said, uh, turn the other cheek when somebody strikes the other one. I mean, this is an upside down kingdom. And Paul reiterates this point and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or rivalry. Nothing, nothing. What's the antidote to that? The antidote is to count others as more significant than yourself. What if I was more aware of this passage every day and said, whatever decision you're about to make, whatever email you're about to send, whatever self-promotion you're about to launch out there in hopes that it will bring more glory to you, even under the auspice of the kingdom of God, make others more important than yourself. I don't dislike business meetings at all. It's fine. I understand it 100%. But again, even as something as simple as that, what if that became the case? I've been in some scary business meetings before, some that make you, well, just afraid. I mean, <laughs> just sad and afraid, right? About silly things at times you'd feel like yelling, you know, I mean, pointing, yelling, storming out, threats. I've seen some stuff. Okay, maybe you have too. And maybe it, but you know what's great is if we would see God's word and be reminded of who he is and put down our glory and pick up his and lift his high up and pray for the unity of our brothers and sisters. Frankly, guys, if that were me, it would stop me from making a donkey out of myself. With my brothers and sisters in Christ, even if the carpet needs to be purple, right? <laughs> Verse four. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, so he doesn't demonize you looking to your own interests. You need to literally survive your life, but also to the interests of others. Have you ever met somebody that just consistently does this? It's rare, but I've met several. I've, I've met people that, that literally uh, pour out their lives for other people. It's just their default. I pray that we could all become, including me, more like this, not just looking to my own flesh and what my needs or felt needs are, but to the needs of other people. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let it be known that this is impossible outside of the miraculous work of Jesus Christ in our lives. You can't look to the other needs of people, truly, and to honor God outside of his miraculous work in your heart. Understand this. There are thousands, millions of people who are genuinely, wonderfully nice. But something's very different about being a philanthropic person or being a morally uh, great person. But if it, they're outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's just actions. We, if we are functioning outside of our relationship with Christ in our own strength, it's just doing things. But the fact, the, the wonderful truth about this is, is that it's absolutely possible because of what Jesus has done. We can put the needs of others first because our leader did it, because our leader showed us how. And when he changed us from the inside out, sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, everything changed. 
Paul goes in, he gives this charge. He says, look, I mean, you're going to suffer like Christ suffered. I mean, I'm suffering in prison right now, but I've heard these wonderful things about you. So if there's any encouragement, be of one mind. Hey, and have the model of Jesus Christ. And then he goes into this detailed and majestic description of the humility that our Savior displayed for us. The title of the sermon today is Humble Servant because our founder and perfecter, like Hebrews 12 talks about, was a humble servant greater than we could ever imagine. And it's exemplified in him coming to the earth. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, um, two different things have reminded me of the truth of Jesus' divinity more than ever over the last month. One, we're putting together a study uh, to, at family time to help prepare families for Easter. And it, it's forcing me to dive even deeper into the divinity of Jesus and what that really means, what the incarnation means what does the manger mean all the way to the cross and the tomb and the empty tomb what does it mean that God came to earth what does it mean that God became flesh and dwelt among us have you ever thought about that it's impossible it's it's literally impossible but the son of man the eternally existent second person of the trinity Jesus didn't begin in the cradle he didn't begin in the manger Jesus is God now, this is something we all, I always hear people say, and I know it's people trying to be theologically precise, but they'll go, you know, we're talking about God and his son, Jesus. And I know what they're doing, but sometimes even statements like that would tempt us to not realize and affirm the biblical and orthodox truth that Jesus Christ is God. Baptists don't talk about the Holy Spirit being God a, a whole lot, but man, he is God. We don't serve three gods. We serve one God expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we believe something other than that, then we're committing heresy. And a part of that truth is that Jesus is the manifestation, the visible manifestation of God. John chapter 1 talks about how he was present and active in creation. Colossians chapter 1 talks about how he is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent one. By him, all things hold together. Jesus is a big deal. We're a Christian church. Not only are we a Christian church, we're a Protestant church totally reliant upon the grace of God and totally thankful for the fact that what we just read tells us that Jesus is alive and enthroned. He's God. He's not worried. He's not, he's not walking around going, what will we do about the culture of the world? What will we do about America? The God that we serve is the winning one. I don't think I've ever rooted for a winning sports team. I think it's me. I think, I'm not superstitious, but I genuinely think it's me. I became a fan of the Houston Texans, and they got worse. They couldn't have gotten worse, but they did. Oh, it's so bad. I mean, I'm a fan of the CSU Rams, and I'll always be, but it just keeps getting worse. And you name it. Name a sports team that I like, I'll tell you, they're bad. But you know what one of the most comforting eternal truths is? Jesus has already won. 
will one day win even more emphatically, like a big exclamation point at the consummation of all things, and he will continually be ruling and reigning victorious King Jesus, currently victorious, always victorious, and we're with him. But here's the truth. The throne room of heaven, this Isaiah 6 vision that put Isaiah, the famous prophet, on the ground, scared to death because of the holiness of God, the enthroned king sitting there, and God gives him this vision, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He's in the throne room of heaven, this vision, the train of his robe, God's robe filled the temple smoke, it shook the foundations of the earth. I mean, this is, this is a majestic scene. Can you imagine what would motivate the Son of God to leave that? Come here? Hebrews chapter 12 talks about for the joy that was set before him, he endured, he despised the same, endured the shame of the cross. For joy? Romans 5.8 talks about for God displayed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love and his joy motivated the cross, him coming down here. But he says this, who was in the form of God, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, great references for that, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This is a new action of God. He became fully God. The other orthodox truth of this is that God, Jesus, is 100% God and 100% man. If we miss that part, we don't get it. If we miss that part, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it means, it means nothing, friends. If he did not become God wrapped in flesh, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. It's a common critique of liberal theology in this day that calls what happened to Jesus on the cross cosmic child abuse changes when you realize that Jesus did it willingly and with joy. He obeyed his father perfectly, but he came out of love. I mean, the passage, John 3, 16, I mean, the one that everyone knows all around the world, one of the most famous, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But we forget sometimes that the son went willingly. I don't understand that. I don't know how that works, but it's true. He went willingly to take the form of man, being found in human form, humbled himself to be obedient to the point of death. Understand this, that when Jesus came, you would think that he would maybe, because of his rank, maybe he could pull some strings and get himself a nice existence on the earth, right? Maybe Pharaoh's pal, you know, like whatever it might be. I mean, whatever Roman dignitary, he could have made his way, right? It's kind of like when they were mocking him on the cross, say, hey, you're the king of the Jews, right? Why don't you just take yourself off of there? Why don't you just command angels to come down? He, you feel like he could have just set up himself a little bit of a nicer condo when he got to the Middle East, right? Like you think it would have been a little bit of a country club life, but actually he was born into a poor family. And although there was royal blood coursing through their veins, whether they knew that or not, from, the, from Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy there, and Luke chapter 3, the genealogy there, although literally through the line of David these people had this blood, he was born to people who had close to nothing. Probably the equivalent of like a construction worker. Uh, it was, he was a carpenter worker back, carpenter back then in a no-name town. No, the town of Nazareth. I mean, this whole, this whole area where he was growing up, it was not some big important place of trade or a place that people wrote about. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
God, the Son of God comes to this girl, this girl that's poor, she's not famous, she doesn't even know about her lineage at this point, and a regular guy named Joseph, angels visit them, tell them what's about to happen, they tell them what's happening with John the Baptist and Mary's cousin Elizabeth, what's happening is, is blowing their minds and they follow in obedience. Remembering this too, if we want to talk about Advent, this scene that Paul is describing here came after 400 years of silence as it relates to special revelation from God. 400 years of pin drop silence. The people of God disobeyed, 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 killed the prophets, killed the prophets, killed the prophets, reject the message of God, get dragged away in chains by Assyria and Babylon. They're in captivity, and even at this point, over 400 years later, they're still in captivity of the Roman government. And 400 years of silence, the anticipation, the Jewish people of praying, would you send the root of David that we prayed about? Would you send the Messiah? Could that be happening soon? Please, the Messiah, the Messiah, the remnant that was there that still had faith in God's authoritative word, as we see in the Old Testament, saying, we want the Messiah, we want the king, we want the son of David to come on a white horse and take out the Roman government. We want him to come. 400 years of silence. Do you think that people lost hope when God became a man? In this, in this barn, the poor people, when he was ministering to people, he said, foxes have holes. He, he went on to describe how he's basically traveling homeless. No, no worldly possessions at his name. Being found in the human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. Imagine this. The Son of God, who obviously knows everything, comes to earth knowing what would happen. Comes to earth knowing that he would be poor, knowing that he would be mistreated. Can you imagine this John 1 God, present at creation and active in creation, as being abused, mistreated, plots of his death circulating, people saying, we will not eat, we will not drink until this Jesus guy is dead. And he created them. These people that are created in the image of God, nailing him to a cross, and he knew about it. As he's put on trial, an illegal trial in the middle of the night, and he tells them, I am, and you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven, why do we need to ask any more questions? The, the, they rip the robes, punch him, rip out his beard, throw accusations at him, spit on him. And he knew that that would happen. Paul is making a point here. He, it's this huge. He says, I mean, first off, just the thought of Jesus coming to the earth at all should make us gasp. That he would come from that Isaiah 6 throne room to hear not just to do that, to be a servant, to be poor, to serve those that he created, knowing that they would kill him. Not only would they kill him, they would kill him with the cross, which was the worst way to die in that time period. It wasn't just him. I mean, thousands of the Roman government killed so many thousands of people with crosses. But he knew that he would die literally an excruciating death. He would be tortured. He would be beaten. He would be mocked. All the while, on the cross, written above him, King of kings and Lord of lords, right? King of the Jews, right, rather? King of the Jews in multiple languages. Saying, ah, King of the Jews. And before they put him up there, they put the crown of thorns on him. They put the robe, the purple robe around him. Afterwards, they cast lots so who can take it home. 
And they say, I mean, they're la- they're la- they don't think anything's going on. And all of a sudden, they say, well, if you're the son of God, why don't you just take yourself off of there? Do you know that in a blink of an eye, a multitude of angels, like we read about in Revelation, could come down and wreck shop? Less than a blink of an eye. That he was a silent lamb, the perfect and prophesied lamb being led to the slaughter. By becoming obedient to the point of death, he says, even death on the cross. This should blow our minds. Remember, what is the purpose of Paul saying this? He says, look, this is your master. Your followers, your disciples of Jesus. He said, put the needs of other people's first. The greatest and preeminent example of this is your master, Jesus. If you want to know how to do it, go be reminded of what he did. And that begins with him coming to the earth at all, knowing that you would kill him. Look at this, though. That's not where the story ends. In just a few months, we'll celebrate Easter. Christmas and Easter, although that's just maybe an occasion for occasional church visitors to come. I don't know. I don't, that's just their tradition. But man, should those two celebrations be just that, a celebration, a party. Because Jesus came so that he would die, so that he wouldn't stay dead, so that he would rise again. Appeared to many over the course of 40 days and ascend into heaven and is now enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Something that has blown my mind over the last several months is to lean a little bit more into the ascension of Jesus and the enthronement of Jesus and what theologians that are way smarter than me call the session of Jesus' kingship, the session of him seated on the throne of power. He says, therefore God, in verse 9, has highly exalted him. God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. If you want to just have your mind blown, later today, go read Hebrews chapter 1 and realize, as the author of Hebrews quotes from many different Old Testament passages, that this is written from the perspective of God the Father pronouncing these titles, pronouncing these rights on the victorious Son. His mission has been accomplished. He is the victorious King, and because He is the victorious King, added glory is given to the already glorious King Jesus. He had become fully God, fully man, obeyed God perfectly. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it, and he died in the place that we deserve on the cross so that we could be made right with God. The righteous died for the unrighteous so that we could be brought to God. God highly exalted him. Statements like from Psalm 110, which Hebrews 1 quotes. Be enthroned at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's an, it's an incredible picture that in the time when Psalm 110 was written, it's this picture of a king when he would go conquer another king, when he would go conquer that, that, that other army. Oftentimes, uh, they wouldn't leave any prisoners, right? But they would bring away the high dignitaries from that other nation, and especially the king. But the king wouldn't just be thrown in a prison cell and humiliated in that way. Sometimes even the king would be brought to the dinner table and he would literally be under the table and the, and the reigning king or the victorious king would put his feet on top of him. Can you get that mental image? God the Father proclaims to the Son, come sit at my right hand, which is a symbol of power. Come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, a consummation of all things. I say, Jesus is currently ruling and reigning And one day, we will be face-to-face with that reality when he comes back, when sin is defeated, Satan is defeated, 
and the perfect government in the new heavens and the new earth is run by Jesus Christ. You will see him. And he will reign the perfect, eternal, unchanging, never-ending, perfect government with King Jesus at the helm. Are you excited about that? Praise God. It's coming. And we as Christians get to come into a church like this and talk about it. We get to come into a church and look at each other and say, he came. He really came. The Son of God came to this earth knowing he would be a servant, knowing he would die. He put the needs of other people first in a way that we can never imagine. And when he was done with it, it didn't end with the resurrection. He went up into heaven in a way, in a picture that I'll never be able to truly describe. He had his coronation service. Crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords, seated at the right hand of the Father. The way that he will show up at the end of this age is the way that he currently is. He is no longer the suffering servant in the Middle East. He's no longer walking around being slapped, ridiculed, plotted against. He's no longer walking around in sandals and regular everyday clothes. This is the enthroned King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now. Did you know that he said in Matthew 28, Go therefore in all nations, right, baptizing, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Therefore, lo, I'll be with you always even to the end of the age. But before he says that, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Sometimes the way we view the end of the world almost pictures this. Jesus will be in charge someday. Jesus, Jesus will be on the throne someday. No. Jesus right now is on the throne. And I don't understand that fully. How can bad things happen? I don't understand that fully. Anybody that tells you they figured that out, they haven't. But you know what comfort I get? I had a, I had a family member whose, whose uh, spouse got cancer. And I went to the husband, family member that I love very much, and, and I said, how are you doing? Like, how? And he said, it's, it's not good. It's, it's, it's scary and whatnot, but God is in control. And that's all we have, is what he said. And that's all we need. He said, it's not easy. Don't get the impression that I'm like, just excited about this. But then I heard his wife say that. Well, it's scary and what, but you know what? This had to pass through the loving hands of my father. God's in control. Jesus is on the throne right now, and it should change what we do today. Well, Paul gives this example. He said, Philippian church, uh, church at Derby Hill, he says, Put the needs of others first. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Put the needs of others first. Hey, look at Jesus. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. When we were singing these songs that were literally verbatim from the book of Revelation, I just love it. I love how God orchestrates services like that. You get this, this vision of this multitude, thousands of thousands, thousands of thousands, angels and saints gathered, all these different skin colors, all these different languages, all proclaiming one truth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Can you imagine that worship service? Can you imagine the consummation of all things? And somebody could take verse 10 and misunderstand it and say, oh, this means that everybody will become a Christian. No, here is the startling truth. Just, just this last month, my wife and I were made aware of a person who practices that heresy called universalism that says, hey, what we do in this life doesn't matter. Everybody will end up in heaven. That's heretic. That's heretical. It will mislead so many. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will acknowledge this. Did you know that every Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, will be at the judgment seat of Christ, right? And it's a specific one, the Bema seat. Every Christian will be face-to-face with Jesus, completely alone with him. Completely alone with him. Now, they're covered in grace because of the sacrifice that he made, the righteous for the unrighteous. He literally paid our debt. And yet we will still give an account for what we did, whether for him or for ourselves. Every person that is lost will be in front of a different throne, the great white throne judgment. I'll put it this way. I I had a friend that years and years ago, he said, you know, he's he's an atheist, and he said, you know, when I get in front of God, this God that you talk about, when I get in front of God, you know what I'm going to tell him? And he goes on this tirade of all the things. Why did you, bap, 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 and he goes through all these things. I can tell you with full confidence and fear. We don't want to rejoice in this. I could tell you with full confidence and in fear that they will know exactly who Jesus is. And it will be terrible. We'll be overwhelmed at the sight of him. One author said, when the day when Jesus comes back for Christians will be the greatest day that we could ever imagine. I don't care what your end times view is. It will be the greatest day that you could ever imagine. Your king has come. Sin is done. Death is done. Immoral politician, done. It's not even possible. My own sin and my own, my own self-seeking nature, it's done. The king is here. But for, that, for those people that don't believe in Jesus in this life, who do not put their faith in Jesus and have their eternities changed, it will be awful, friends. And if nothing else, it, that should push us forward to tell them the truth. Jesus, meek and mild, he won't be. He will come back as the judge. He came to seek and save that which was lost, and he will come back on a white horse. King, king, the, the, the root of David, as the song said earlier today, will come back and do exactly what he said he will do. And let's not miss the point of this passage. Paul says this. He says, church at Philippi, I am so excited about you. I'm so pleased to hear what I've been what I've been hearing. Christians within Philippi, the church at Philippi, keep going. Later on, he gives the example of how Timothy puts this to practice. He says, I I hope to send you Timothy who puts the needs of other people. Then he goes on to say, then I hope to be able to send you Epaphroditus who nearly died, but you should be encouraged because he's been made whole. And he gives these examples of these young godly men that he has trained. And he says, I hope to send them to you. He's saying, pattern your life 
after the one who came. Like the author of Hebrews, fix your eyes on the founder and perfecter of our faith. Throw off the sin that so easily besets us. Keep your eyes on the founder and perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him. And because of the miraculous nature of our salvation and sanctification, today you, Calvary Hill, can look at each other in unity. And you can put your preferences aside, no matter what they are, whether it's related to COVID or related to the color of a van. Whatever is going on, you can say, because of who Jesus is, I can look at my brother across the room, or I can look at my sister across the room, or I can look at the young people in our church and say, man, they're loud. (laughs) But man, I'm going to put their needs first. (laughs) Man, they break stuff. But man, they they don't have a baby Holy Spirit in them. They have the full Holy Spirit in them. And I'm going to do, I don't know how, but I'm going to pray that God would give me the vision to put that kid's need first. Man, that, that lady looks at me like she hates me. Right? Like, that lady looks at me like she hates me. I don't know what I did, but apparently I did something. You say, God, I don't know what that is. I, I pray that you'd reveal that to me until then. And, and for here on out, man, I'm going to do whatever I can to put her needs first. I'll tell you the story, and then I'll pray, and we'll be done. Uh, over a year ago now, it became very clear to my wife and I that we were going to leave the church that we loved in East Texas and move to Denver which we knew nothing about. Not only that, we knew that we would be raising support for that position. So in other words, in a surprising move of God's sovereignty and providence, he said, you're going to do something that scares you more than life itself. I mean, like, you're, you're, this is going to be hard. But I'm calling you to do it, so here we go. And there was a lady in my church that looked at me as if I were the devil incarnate. And I don't know, again, I, I didn't have a relationship with her. I didn't, you know, and you, you start to assume things. And I wonder, and she would pass by me, and she would just give me this look. And I would be so self-conscious. I'd be like, man, I don't know what to say. I'm literally scared. I mean, like, she is so mad at me. I don't know what it is. And uh, I just was too afraid to just ask her. I should have just asked her, is there anything that I've done? I mean, what's, what's going on? I mean, it's like, what's, why are you so upset? And the day that we announced to our church that God was calling us to go somewhere and God was calling us to leave the church that we'd been at for nearly a decade and go off and she knew that we had a need. This lady doesn't have a lot. She came up to me and she said, Frankie, she said, God's told me that I'm supposed to give my stipend that comes from the military and has come to me from the military since 1975 of $50 a month. God's called me to give that to you. And I was... I mean, I was in the foyer of the church, and I was just gobsmacked, if that's a word that we use these days. I mean, I was shocked, didn't know what to say. I started mumbling. She literally said it in a way that's like, you don't even have a choice. This is going to happen. And it reminded me of this, that me and that lady have nothing in common, almost nothing. Uh, we like different things. Uh, we talk in different ways. I, may, I think I might smile a little bit more than she does. I think I, try to make, I think I try to make people understand that I'm not mad at them. I don't know what it is. It's just we are completely different people. And when that woman came up to me that day, it reminded me that my perception is limited. We don't have anything in common, right, other than the fact that she's my sister in Christ. And we will be worshiping at the throne of Jesus for all of eternity. I talked to her on the phone last month, and she was as matter-of-fact and blunt and 
not rude, but just, I mean, a little bite. I mean, like, it was like, she is just a different personality than me, and I praise God for her. I said, how can I pray for you today? And she told me, and we prayed together over the phone. There might be somebody in your church community, or there might be somebody that hasn't been here in months, and you miss them. I mean, or maybe you don't. And you think, God, what would you have me to do to pray for unity with that woman or with that man? What is going on in their life? But what if I don't like them? I had somebody say this the other day. They said, I don't think he was talking about a church in this area. And he found out that there were Democrats in the church. (laughs) And the guy went to this pastoral staff member who was telling me this almost with tears. The man came to him and said, um, you said something about being like open to talking to people of other political positions than us. And then he said, but what if they're Democrats? <laughs> and the pastor said, you, you love them. They're part of the, the, the body of Christ. Like, we'll worship with them at the throne of Jesus forever. Like, they have a different opinion than you, and it's, and it's important. It's not unimportant. But, yeah, I mean, there's going to be Democrats here. <laughs> could be Republicans here. And he said, I don't think I could be a part of a church where Democrats are allowed here. Can you? That's real. That happened in this town. Isn't that silly? But how easy is it for us to divide over stuff like that? We say, how dumb do you have to be to be a fill in the blank? How dumb do you have to do to, it's like me coaching the Rams. <laughs> how dumb do you have to be to run that ball one more time? Paul encourages the church at Philippi to say, whatever you've got, even if it's important, even if it's meant the world to you since you were a child, would you lay it down and pick up the needs of somebody else? It will never be easy. But in the name of Jesus, it's essential. I want you to close your eyes with me. I'm going to tell you this. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that we've described, he really did come here, like we said. He came out of love and of joy and out of obedience to his father. Lived a perfect life in obedience to the law of Moses. Lived a perfect life of adherence to the word of God. And died the death that we should have died. Because you know what? Each one of us has broken the law of God. And are therefore separated from God. He died on the cross but didn't stay dead. He rose again on resurrection Sunday. Appeared to many and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is alive. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus today, would you do that? If you're watching online or something, or if you're somehow you're hearing this, and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do it today. Do it today. Run to him today for salvation, for life eternal that begins today. Christian, Maybe, like me, you read this passage and you realize that you really haven't been putting the needs of others first. Has God brought anybody up to your mind? If he hasn't, pray that he would. Or simply pray for an opportunity. And here's what I'm inviting you to do. For today, right in your seat, would you lay it at the feet of Jesus, saying, God, I'm scared about doing this. This doesn't make sense. I'm not even... uh, an outgoing person, and I'm supposed to put the needs of other people first? Look, sometimes you may put the other needs of people first, and they won't even know about it. But the Father will. 
So will you ask God today to reveal to you a need within Calvary Derby Hill and in your community where you can consciously put their needs first? Would you pray something to that effect right now? If God's leading you in that way. Father, here in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion and we're going to celebrate the fact that your son's body was broken, that your son's blood was spilled for us. Father, I pray that we could walk into that, that believers could walk into that experience just remembering what your son did and just sitting in that for a moment. God, I pray that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness, Lord, and wrap us up in the grace that you've already provided us. Make us more aware of your grace-filled arms today. And Father, I pray for anything that the devil would want to do in this church, Lord, that you would work against it actively. Pray for any divisions that could ever happen, like any church has those struggles, God. I pray that you would permanently protect Calvary Derby Hill from such things. I pray for unity in the church global, but I want it to start here at Calvary Derby Hill. I pray for unity for Calvary Derby Hill. God, I pray, even as we joked earlier, I pray that that meeting next Sunday is just pure joy. I pray that it's just pure joy because everyone there not only has had some delicious food, but knows that they are going to put the needs of others first, even those in their community. God, would you, would you let that happen? Would you provide that opportunity? Father, may you bless the reading and preaching and singing of your word today. God, make us more aware of what our master Jesus showed us how to do. And thank you, Lord, that he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of power. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we trust in, that not only is he in control, but that he's going to come back. Thank you, Lord, for the justice that will happen at that juncture. And Lord, help us carry out justice even today in his name. We pray this in that powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.